Support for WAER Original Podcasts comes from California Closets of Syracuse, located in DeWitt. California Closets can help you get your entire home organized with custom design storage solutions for the home office, kitchen pantry, closets, and more. Online at californiaclosets.com. Your host, Kendall Phillips, here to interrupt our special Pop Life series on Rocktober for a breaking news bulletin. Strange happenings are being reported throughout the Northeast. Demonic spirits are appearing in houses in Beverly, Massachusetts. Strange satanic activities are being reported in Split Rock. There are apocalyptic cults roaming New Hampshire, rabies-infected mobs wreaking havoc near Boston, and now we are hearing stories of vampires swarming the streets of Providence, Rhode Island. Now, before you barricade your door and grab your garlic cloves, relax. All these monstrous beings are carefully contained within the brilliant novels of my guest for this special Halloween edition of Pop Life, best-selling author Paul Tremblay. Paul is the author of eight horror and crime novels, including Survivor's Song, Cabin at the End of the World, and his most recent, The Paul Bearers Club, along with numerous short stories. The New York Times Book Review has called Paul, quote, a writer whose reach will continue to grow and grow, and no less than Stephen King declared simply that Paul's novel, A Head Full of Ghosts, quote, scared the living hell out of me. Perhaps the highest praise a horror novelist can hope to receive. Paul, welcome to Pop Life. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, that guy. Oh, that... Thank you, Kendall. And man, I feel sorry I, I interrupted Rocktober. Rocktober sounds awesome. <laughs> well, you know, it's funny. Actually, I was thinking about, uh, as I was getting ready for the interview, we, we've had a great series of, of, of interviews for Rocktober, but mm -hmm. you do include music quite prominently, and particularly in the Paul Bears Club, which, if unless I'm mistaken, every tie, every chapter of Paul Bears Club was a Husker Du song. Is that correct? Yeah, that is correct. <laughs> Part of writing the Hall, uh, the Paul Bears Club was me allowing myself to sort of nerd out about my favorite music. So I'm curious. I mean, how does music play a role in your creative writing, and and particularly in the Paul Bears Club? Like you, you wanted to nerd out, but it really is for those who haven't had a chance to read uh, this really amazing new book of Paul's. Uh, it really is central, like music, and particularly that music of the late '80s, '90s, that Husker Du, Pixies, Cure era is really front and center of the novel. So, can you talk a little about how the music kind of helped you flesh that story out? Sure. Uh... So I would say on a, on a personal level, um, you know, me discovering, you know, that music was really what, you know, gave me either the confidence or the passion or somehow allowed me to imagine that, hey, maybe I could create some sort of art myself. <laughs> and my first attempts were music. Uh, honestly, if I had a time machine, if I could go back and choose, I think I would still choose to go back in time and become a somewhat successful, you know, punk musician. Um, so at the Palm Bears Club, once I realized that the story was going to be written as a, uh, or presented as a found memoir, uh, it was going to be very autobiographical in a way that, that sort of, <laughs> I gave myself permission to, to talk about music and, and write it, you know, talking about music in that book was a way for me to talk about it, metaphorically, you know, how writing sort of is tied to my mental health and maybe some healthy and not so healthy ways. Yeah, for those who haven't read it, uh, Paul Bear's Club is, is a found memoir of Art Barbara, the, perhaps the greatest pseudonym <laughs> in the history of uh, literary pseudonym, uh, who is uh, deeply invested in the music of the era and becomes a musician. So I'm curious, Paul, uh, how much of Art Barbara, this young person who feels a little alienated and isolated, 
had some health issues, is struggling with probably some mental health issues, finds music as an outlet that really provides him kind of a core of strength and, and an outlet. How much of that is is you? Yeah, poor Aunt Barbara. Sorry, I had to say it with a Boston <laughs> accent. Um, <laughs> you know, the, the high school stuff, which is maybe the first third of the book, I would say it's quite a, you know, it's pretty much me, you know, uh, you know, the, all the health stuff is stuff that, that, I, that I've dealt with. Mm. Uh, I mean, aside from the casual vampirism that ends up in the book, I would say it's quite autobiographical, but in, in a way that that fiction always takes autobiography and, and makes something else. And to me, that was actually one of the fun parts of the book was that there was so much of me in this, but the end result, you know, it's obviously, you know, uh, fiction, well, hopefully obviously, obviously fiction. I, my, my family definitely is having a hard time with that. Oh, is that what? What is the response? I'm curious. Your your family. What is their response to your to your novels? Well, you know, typically I usually sort of put them <laughs> as main <laughs> characters in my other books, so they're they're somewhat used to it. But like this one was like, wow, you really went to a lot of places, um, even with something like a head full of ghosts. Sure. Um, you know, a lot of that book was set in a combination of my sister's current house and my old house in Beverly, and my brother was convinced that the parents were the parent. You know, the parents of the Headful of Ghosts were my parents, which they're not, even though I gave them some like a similar employment background. Um, so, yeah. So, I mean, I, I get like I think any sort of friends or relatives of writers, <laughs> you're bound to see like either yourself or people, you know, in there. Um, I don't know. I, I feel like I'm not that different than many writers who, you know, I imagine myself almost as like a magpie, like, you know, mm. taking bits of grass and straw and anything that's around to build my nest. And, you know, so for the people in my life, I'm, I'm taking their bits <laughs> And making my nest. Well, that's a really, I, I extended that metaphor, but hopefully it works. You did well. I think that was a good, you, you, you should be a writer, Paul. I think they could do that. Um, <laughs> but I, I'm curious if I could push it just one more step, and I, I, and I don't want sure. to turn this entirely into, into like a therapy session or anything. But I, as I think about it, so many of your books, the family is sort of really central. And I know that's often the case, but really, you know, a head full of ghosts is, is, is set initially in a family that may or may not right. have a possession certainly survivor's song is a lot about a mother and, and child and family and now paul bears club is certainly about art barbara i won't try and do the boston accent but art <laughs> barbara and his relationship to his family and then kind of growing beyond the family and feeling independent so do you feel like i mean when you're writing do you sort of think about your own childhood or your own family and and that dynamic yeah for sure i mean for a while like even you know pre these novels when i was writing mainly short stories you know a friend pointed out to me he's like geez do you realize that you write about families a lot you know it might be strange to say that at the time i was like oh geez i i didn't realize i was doing that um i mean it makes sense for me as you know i you know, I'm fortunate to have like a, you know, a very strong family. Like when I was in high school, I didn't have much of a social life to me. It was like my siblings and my, my, my extended family that I hung out with. And then, um, you know, shortly I went to college for four years and grad school for two. And then right from there, I, I started teaching math at a local high school. So I I've always been on sort of like <laughs> what I like to call the kid's calendar where, you know, every June I get excited because school's ending every August, late August, I'm like totally depressed because school's starting back up. But I, I've, I've always been in that sort of mental cycle. So I think it helps me stay attuned to not necessarily the memories of, of, of childhood, but certainly the emotional life of childhood. So uh, I guess I've been endlessly fascinated slash obsessed with writing stories from either parents or, or children looking at their parents and, you know, vice versa. Um, I don't know. It's one of the few universal experiences we have, right? We've all had some sort of family 
uh, or been a part of some sort of family, whether or not it's been a positive or negative experience. And to me, it's just like, it's a wealth of, of material to work with. No, and, and you've mined it well in, in really interesting ways. Now, I do want to turn back to this, uh, your, your background, uh, mathematics, and as I understand <laughs> it, basketball. Um, so I don't mean to be stereotypical, Paul, but that, that does not sure. strike me as what I would think the horror novelist uh, is coming out of. Uh, <laughs> so I'm wondering, you know, for you a, a, as a person who clearly has some aptitude with math uh, and with a, a, a ball, um, how did you get into writing? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, actually, we're starting an MFA program that's focusing on math and basketball. <laughs> it, it's it's sort of hard to explain like how it happened. I mean, I think there was one, as I sort of mentioned earlier, there was a clear want for some sort of creative outlet, um, but it didn't happen until in my late twenties. And actually, my the last college class I took was like an, a lit one hundred and one or an English one hundred and one, something that freshmen take. But I was taking it as a senior to fulfill a requirement. Um, but I had an amazing, you know, a stereotype of like a, a great, you know, English professor. He happened to be a huge punk fan. So I really connected with him there. Um, and I remember the stories that he assigned. One of them in particular was Joyce Carol Oates's Where Have You Going? Where Have You Been? Hmm. And when I read that story, it felt like an awakening. I was like, whoa, I didn't know people wrote stories like this. You know, shortly after that, you know, I graduated. You know, I was in a new relationship with uh, Lisa, who's my wife now. And she she was a Stephen King fan as a teenager. So she started giving me Stephen King to read. And when I went away to study math for two years at the University of Vermont, I was also, I fell in love with reading for the first time. Mm. Um, and when I emerged from Vermont, I had this weird itch to try writing a story. Um, I can't really explain it beyond that. It was just more, you know, as I said, I think part of it is just being confident enough to, to think, you know, even though if I'm not going to be as good as that person, I still want to try to do that. There's something inside me that makes me want to try something like that. Um, and without being too glib, I mean, I think that's a hard thing for people to learn, especially now. Like, you know, I'm around high school kids all the time. And obviously, even when we were in high school, it was always pretty much universally uncool to seem like you were trying too hard, right? <laughs> or, yeah. Or, I mean, that's sort of what internet life is, right? As soon as someone says, hey, I love this, you know, a thousand people jump on and say, no, it sucks. Um but the idea, I think, that when you get older, that it's okay to like things, it's okay to be passionate about things. To me, that's like such a freeing, you know, whether or not you're a writer or a musician or an artist, to me, as someone who appreciates that kind of art, it's such a freeing thing to be like, oh, hey, I like this and it means something to me. So I give myself permission to sort of not only like, I don't want to say consume it, but, you know, become a fan, but also to maybe even try your hand at it. It's so not punk to care. And yet, clearly, all the punk musicians right. that we loved growing up cared because they were out there oh, absolutely. touring and, and, and doing. So, thinking about that, you know, for you as a writer, uh, it's obviously a little bit different than, you know, Bob Mould going in the studio uh, and then going <laughs> on tour. How do you, like, what is your process? Like, how do you come up with stories? How do you develop them? How do you find time to write? Like, sort of give us a glimpse into the, the life of Paul Tremblay. Sure. So typically, you know, I guess we'll, we'll restrict this to a novel. Most of my novels, I'll say this, like I usually have to like find an idea. Like I typically am not someone who's like, oh, I've got all these novel ideas just waiting for me to pluck and start working on them. No, for me, it's like I'm usually, OK, what am I going to write about next? And, you know, you try to sort of force inspiration in some ways. What am I say by force? It's like I'll carry a notebook around with me and just try to be open to any things that might interest me. In the example of the Paul Bearers Club, I was lucky that that title just fell into my lap when I was at school. There was a student at my school who happened to start a pallbearers club. And I was like, oh, what a, 
what a sweet like thing to do. What a nice community service. But the horror writer me is like, oh my God, I have to use this. <laughs> so once that happens, then I think, okay, like what's sort of either the what if of the story. And then usually my first big jump into it, if I think I'm going to use a, a certain idea or a theme is to think about the characters. So Art Barbara had to come first. Um, and before I, and what I'll do is I'll typically like take notes in a notebook, you know, sometimes for a week, sometimes in the case of the Paul Barrows Club, I let it sort of just ruminate and sit around for like a few months. And, and I worked on something else while I was just thinking about the Paul Barrows Club. But once I get sort of the main players in place, typically I'll write like a 10 page plot summary, just a bare bones. Like this is what I think the book's going to be about um, before I start typing, you know, chapter one. Now, for Paul Bear's Club in particular, and I think probably your other novels, but that that's just the the one I, I've most recently read. Mm-hmm. Um, you you clearly did your research um, because, and I don't want to give anything away, but there is a sure. connection to a broader myth in the Northeast of, about vampires because we already mentioned the right. vampires potentially in the novel. So, how do you go about doing the research? Very reluctantly. <laughs> <laughs> That, well, I mean, part of it is like my academic background is not in anything relating to research, right? You know, I was a math humanities double major in Providence mm-hmm. College, but the humanities was really just a hodgepodge of stuff. You know, and my grad school degree is math. So it wasn't like I was out doing research papers where I had to cite resources and stuff like that. So anyway, all that to say is I just don't, I'm not as confident in the, in the, in the research process as some other writers. You know, and that's part of the fun of writing. There are mm-hmm. so many other writers like, you know, the brilliant Stuart O'Nan basically writes so he can research as an excuse for him to research <laughs> at times. So for me with the Paul Bears Club, I had I knew I wanted to have some like quasi or ambiguous supernatural element dealing with this kid who's, you know, set up this club at funeral homes, volunteering to serve elderly and homeless that don't have a lot of living relatives. So, you know, obviously, you know, you're gonna be in a place where there are gonna be dead people and like, oh, what's the what's the creepy supernatural thing possibly going to be? Uh, and I don't think it's too much of a spoiler, but I happen to stumble across the story of Mercy Brown. I guess I'll just leave it at that. Um, if someone wants to quickly Wikipedia or Google Mercy Brown, you'll find, you know, she was the last quote unquote New England vampire <laughs> that was exhumed in 1892. Uh, and it's just a wild story. And the part of what it what excited me about it was like, how did I live in New England my whole life and not know mm. the story of Mercy Brown? But it has certainly seemed to have... Uh, that, that story is I, it's certainly obviously more popular, but certainly a lot more well-known now, I think, than it, than it has been, you know, to the point where one of my favorite bands, Clutch, Clutch's new album, uh, Sunrise at Slaughter Beach, features a song named Mercy Brown as well. So it's just kind of a fun, you know, there's something Mercy Brown in the air, apparently. It, it, it's funny, as I was getting ready for this interview, uh, my college roommate, Sean, is also a big Clutch fan, and as am I. And he mentioned not only that there was a song, Mercy Brown, that he had gone to Mercy Brown's grave. Nice. And I said, well, have I got something for you? I just read this novel <laughs> and I'm about to. So I think there is something creepily bringing all of us to Mercy Brown. I'm not sure where that ends up. Uh, but I did want to ask, you know, you've mentioned some other novelists. Are there horror novelists that have been influential to you? I mean, you talked about Stephen King. Are there other folks that you look to for inspiration or, or to rework their myths? Oh, for sure. Um, you know, Stephen King was certainly the first. Um, I would say, you know, the the recently uh, departed Peter Straub mm. is definitely a, f- a foundational writer for me. Um, you know, he's also somebody I classify as like, I'll never be as good as Peter Straub, but like his work never fails to, you know, it never fails to inspire me. And in fact, I usually find when I do have time to go back to read something, I 
get some, I get way more out of it now than I did when I first tried reading it 20, 25 years ago. I just wasn't ready. wasn't smart enough. Um, similarly, I would say, you know, Clive Barker and Shirley Jackson. I mean, you know, a big part of uh, head full, my novel, A Head Full of Ghosts, is certainly a nod to, to Shirley Jackson's work. Um, maybe not necessarily a horror writer, uh, but Kurt Vonnegut was mm -hmm. someone who... <laughs> Actually, when I read him, I think that was one of the first times like, oh, this is such like a conversational, you know, sort of personal styles. Like, oh, maybe I could try that kind of thing. So I don't know. Everything I read, everything I listen to is grist for the mill is all inspiration for me. Um, and that includes so many of my contemporaries. They, they never fail to inspire, you know, the work that I'm doing now as well. You know, it's interesting. We, we are we do seem and I'll say this as, as an outsider, a reader and a fan, but we do seem to be in, in a kind of really golden age. Uh, of horror and not just the traditional, you know, Stephen King and, and everyone in his family, but um, so many folks uh, writing really interesting, provocative uh, horror. And a lot of that, it seems, has a kind of political edge. I, I, last year, I talked to Victor Laval, um, who was wonderful and talking about the sort of reappropriation of Lovecraft and the kind of mm. engagement with racial dynamics there. Um, and we talked to Matt Ruff uh, on the show previously about those sorts of issues. So I'm wondering for you, I mean, often we think of horror as having, I guess contemporary horror as having kind of a political edge or a political point of view in terms of who's the monster and who's the victim, et cetera. Right. For you, do you feel like you have a politics in your novel? Are you trying to push an agenda or engage with kind of broader social systems or is that something that you think about at all no i definitely think about that i think i mean by default anything anything you write any form of art it is a political act in some form um and i would say sort of on the micro level like story specifically at times like something like something like a head full of ghosts i, I tried to purposely i no, i tried to i did purposely engage with you know gender issues within uh the tradition of of exorcism and possession stories uh and how typically it's a you know a teen or a preteen girl being exploited mm -hmm. uh within the story uh my novel the cabinet at the end of the world i wrote that yeah i started it in summer of 2016 and finished it in 2017 and that book was definitely i think it was the first time i started a book with is you know what <laughs> i want this to feel like the political anxieties were all feeling as Trumplandia is sort of looming on the horizon. And then actually, you know, once it was actually there as well, it, once Trump got elected, it actually changed the book. Which uh, I felt so no, Survivor's I Song felt to me. Purposely. Survivor's Song very much felt, uh, uh, and I certainly see that in Cabin, but Survivor's Song, I remember reading that probably just shortly after it came out and yeah. feeling such a visceral connection to the pandemic and anxiety and the anti-mask and anti-vax movement, all that cultural tension just seemed to really be captured in the book. Was that part of what inspired that, that novel? Yeah. I mean, for me, I like cabin and, and survivor song are sort of connected. Like, I feel like those two are, you know, I feel like survivor song, even, even totally different characters. I feel like that book sort of picks up where cabin left off in some ways. Hmm. Although, <laughs> you know, I, I wrote that book, Started in 2018, finished in 2019. So all like the weird pandemic parallels were were, were stuff that I had written beforehand. But um, so that that's made for a sort of a strange experience. You know, the idea, you know, that the book talks about anti-vaxxers and anti-maskers. Um, in some ways, that wasn't hard to, to predict if, mm -hmm. if we were to have a pandemic, that that would be the case, because I've been fascinated and appalled by the anti-vaccination movement for for a long time now. Um 
I guess the last thing I would say, though, to the to the larger you know political question on a macro level, I think what has been so successful and what we're seeing in, in the in my favorite sort of uh, horror works that are being produced now is that for years, and I think this is still the case too sometimes, but for years horror had like the well earned reputation for being uh, a reactionary sort of genre, like that so many of these horror stories, particularly in the '80s, uh, would feature a reestablishing of the status quo. Mm. Um, and you're not, uh, you know, post, you know, post 2000, those aren't the horror stories that you're necessarily getting. I kind of fear we might be going towards that, but are back to it just because I think people want like happier endings <laughs> based on everything that, you know, we're living through now. But what excites me about horror is horror with like a progressive story structure, you know, and that's not even like without necessarily getting to the politics, but like horror with a progressive story structure to me reflects the fact that change is inevitable you know whether or not like you don't want it to change you it you don't have a choice you know change is a part of existence you can't go back to the good old days and and the fact that you're calling it the good old days is a lie you know there's no such thing to that so i think like on a larger level those are the kind of horror stories that you're seeing and to me that feels like it's those are the stories that are being more truthful about what it is that we're going through and i think that's why they've connected with a lot more people and so many people now. So I'm curious, Paul, do you think of yourself as a horror writer or do you think of yourself as a writer who happens to have written a number of really amazing books in horror? Like how do you think of yourself <laughs> in relation to the genre? Yeah, I'm happy either way, but um, I, I guess I think of myself as the latter as someone who just happens to write within the horror genre. Um, you know, I've written, you know, a few quirky comedy crime novels. I mean, my, personal interests are going to tend to take me sort of towards darker fiction anyway. But what you said second was an important lesson for me as a writer. Like when I first started in the mid nineties and early two thousands, when I was really just trying to figure out what I could do as a writer, I tried to force every story I had into a horror story. And then I sort of made the self discovery or the self sort of actualization kind of like you says, like, Oh, you know, not every story has to be a horror story. I'm just going to, whatever the story idea is, that's what I'm going to, I'm going to try to make that story the best it can be and not try to force it be something that it isn't, which to me was a super important lesson to learn. Like, I feel like I improved as a writer almost instantly once that my story comes first sort of mantra, which sounds really trite, but it's an important thing to think of. I think, be you know, became my mantra and it, you know, I wouldn't have written this weird science fiction novel that I wrote like way back when, and the same with uh, the two detective novels I wrote um, even though those didn't sell that well, that, you know, that's certainly not a, a measurement of success necessarily for me. Like I, I, was, I was happy with those books. When you're thinking about a story, and that's, I think it's really great advice for any of our listeners who, who are interested in pursuing their writing and their creative force and thinking about the story coming first and not trying to force it into something. Are there stories that you have that just don't come to fruition? I mean, we, we certainly have seen the examples of amazingly matured stories that came together well but are there other stories that just never quite found that form oh sure i mean i'd say especially on the short story side of things you know i've i've written a bunch of short stories and some are way more successful than others um i won't make fun of my published novels <laughs> um it's still too too soon now uh but i've had plenty of novels that i've i've started and abandoned just because i knew it wasn't working um with maybe the most important one was in 20 February of 2013 I was about 100 pages into a novel 
that I was I was calling Charles Manson doesn't answer my letters, which is still a great title, by the it's way. A great title. That's a great title. <laughs> but but the novel really wasn't it wasn't clicking and it wasn't going, and I found that I was doing. I was fine. I was making excuses to do quote unquote research, which to me meant like, oh man, I'm really sort of bogged down in this book. Um, and then the idea for a head full of ghosts just literally fell into my lap. Like it was one of those eureka moments that you dream about as a writer, which, you know, I've only gotten maybe twice now, but it took a lot of courage for me to quit that novel that I wrote a hundred pages of to start this unknown thing. Uh, especially when my agent was sort of expecting the Charles Manson novel. thing. That I <laughs> um, so yeah, I, uh, since then, like there's been a few times where I've done like very detailed outlines uh, of novels that I ended up not working on. You know, happily, I was able to figure out in the outlining process that now nah, this isn't the thing that I want to work on, as opposed to like 100 pages or more into it. Yeah, it would, that, would, that would be painful. To, I'm sure that was a painful experience. Yeah. Out of curiosity, what was the other uh, novel that just fell into your lap? Was it Paul Bearer's Club? What was the other that you said? Yeah, I guess yeah, Paul Bearer's is close enough just because the, the, the title like landed in my mm. lap. Um, but I guess that's all that really was. The rest of it I had to put work into. <laughs> <laughs> How dare they make you work? Now, I yeah, am curious, right? speaking of, of the work, and clearly you 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 have great passion for your stories, and, and, and I love to hear, you know, the, the care you take in sort of developing these and, and your kind of loyalty to the shape of the story. So I have to ask, uh, as, as folks now widely know, uh, one of your novels now has been handed over to another creator uh, to turn yeah. it into a different uh, medium. So I wonder if you could talk a little about um, what that feels like uh, for you as the author of Cabin at the End of the World to hand that over to a, a very accomplished filmmaker, M. Night Shyamalan, to turn that into Knock at the Cabin. What's that experience like for you? <laughs> uh, well, so far, I mean, it's it's like, you know, incredibly exciting, which I guess is the understatement of the year that, you know, that this is going to be a film and you know, a, a very widely released one, um, you know, in one way, like, I know I'd be hypocritical if I didn't say like, Hey, this is it. Cause it is really cool. But one, like as a writer, I've, you know, many times taking other ideas or other works of art and then, you know, using those sparks to create something new. And, and the most obvious choice is a head full of ghosts, which definitely riffs on, you know, William Peter Blatty's the exorcist and, within the book itself, it mentions that it mentions all these other horror movies too. So like as a writer, I'm endlessly fascinated. You know, one of the things I'm other, I'm fascinated with besides the family stuff that we talked about is the idea of inspiration and ideas. And, you know, the horror genre itself, to me, I think one of the cool parts, if you're going to be a horror writer or use something in genre is I like to imagine as you get to join in this like century and a half long conversation that's been going, which which has been going on. And if you do your job, if you if you do a really good novel or story, you know that story not only gets to engage with what happened before it, maybe maybe you actually sort of change the conversation about an earlier work, or or you add something to the conversation about an earlier work. So you know the idea that someone's going to take a book that I wrote, you know, put their own stamp on it, make a movie. Like I'm very excited and just and and fascinated by the process. Like you know, what are they going to do? What's it going to look like? But I'd be totally, I'd be utterly lying to you if I said I was egoless about the whole thing. Um, you know, particularly with the cabinet at the end of the world, which, you know, is a novel that I, I feel, you know, I have deep personal feelings about that book. Um, so, yeah, when, when there's in, you know, there will be changes, you know, I'm, I'm not going to say what ends up changing, but, you know, obviously I'm going to think my version's better. I'm not going to lie about that. Um, yeah, so it is going to be a little strange, like, you know, because also like the, the reality is that 
you know, once that movie's in the world, that story is going to be known by the vast, vast majority of people by that movie and not the book, right? Um, so that that's sort of, <laughs> uh, I, I want to say the catch-22, because obviously, you know, mm. this, this movie being made is going to allow me to pay for my daughter's college, and, you know, it's a life-changing thing. But at the same time, like, you know, when that story gets discussed, you know, for most people, it's going to be the movie and not the book. And that, you know, that's a little weird. It must be hard. I'm wondering, did you have a lot of input on the creative process of the movie? Because I actually am remembering, I think the first time you and I ever interacted was via social media. So not anything personal <laughs> for you, but about yeah. casting uh, one of the characters there, which I thought should have been the gentleman whose name I'm not remembering uh, from the show Mindhunter. Uh, and ended up being David oh, Bautista yeah. uh, in the final film. So did you have much say in ideas about casting, ideas about setting, et cetera? Or were you involved in the process of developing uh, Knock at the Cabin? I had zero say. What's what's less than zero say <laughs> <laughs> once uh, M. Night was on board, which is fine. Like the, the contract I signed, you know, in 2017 with Film Nation, you know, I'm in a slightly different place now. Maybe I could, you know, hopefully if there's another contract someday, I could ask for... A little bit more control you know whether or not that means i actually write a screenplay or not i don't know so yeah no i <laughs> i've had no say in anything I, you know i will say that his screenplay puts a lot more of the book back into the movie i think than what was there originally especially in the first couple acts um but yeah so um you know the the i would say briefly the casting thing to me though hasn't been strange just because i get asked all the time like, oh, who do you imagine like as these characters in the movie? I'm like, I never think about that. And I'm not saying that just because I'm like a precious writer. It's just that's just not how sure. I think. I spend way more time thinking about, oh, if they would let me do the soundtrack to this movie. This is I would <laughs> to my book as movie. This is what I would do. I think you definitely should get uh, soundtrack control <laughs> for the Paul Bearers Club when that uh, gets me. Now, are there other of your novels that are in process in, into other media, either series or, or TV shows or anything films that you can talk about here? Yeah, a Head Full of Ghosts is uh, under option uh, and has been since 2015. It's been with the same set of producers for a long time, uh, or, or for that entire length of time, Allegiance Theater and Team uh, Team Downey. You know, they've been, you know, super cool. We've had close calls. You know, the movie probably would have filmed, well, not probably, I think it would have filmed um, summer of 2020, if mm. not for everything that had happened. You know, so they've had to start over a couple times. But, you know, they're still working on it. We'll see. Uh, my novel Survivor Song is also under option, um, and that actually feels closer. Hmm. They have a you know very cool director, um, and the the screenplay is really good. Um, I, I get an associate producer's credit, which I think is just more like <laughs> you know a pat in the head, like hey. <laughs> but I, I will say that the the producers have been very very good about keeping me in the loop. You know they definitely had me in on the the decision for like who was going to write the screenplay and stuff like that. So, you know, that, that part of it's definitely been fun for Survivor Song. So what is next for you, Paul? What is, is there, is there a novel in the works? Should we be expecting something else? You've been really, you know, quite prolific over the last few years. I'm just always impressed by the next thing coming out from you and I've got to run <laughs> out and, and get it and, and read it. So are, is there something else coming soon? Are there things in the works? Anything you can share with the pop life listeners? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so next summer, you know, probably early July, I'll have a, a short story collection called um, The Beast You Are uh, coming out. Um, and that short story collection will feature uh, a short novel uh, or a novella, you know, same title, The Beast You Are. And because, Kendall, I'm so attuned to what, like, mainstream 
publishing wants. <laughs> this novella is an anthropomorphic animal story that features a giant monster and a cat that's a slasher. And I wrote it in free verse. That, which is clearly the next big trend. I think <laughs> I think everybody's going to be jumping on that. Yeah. Trend. Well, Paul, you are an amazing uh, guest and certainly setting the stage for horror. And we loved having you. Uh, as regular listeners will know, in addition to learning more about our guests and their expertise. We also like to dig into their pop culture loves. And Paul, we be do that. We begin that segment with a little game uh, right. we call the Fast Five. So I'm going to ask you uh, five uh, questions, all horror-related. You'll be happy to know uh, with okay. either-or questions. Uh, and so we're going to ask you to follow your heart and give us the best of your dark answers. So question number one, which really near and dear to your heart, uh, Paul, which would you rather be living in your house, ghosts or vampires? Oh, boy. Uh, I already feel pressure. I'm going to say ghosts just because, you know, there's a chance they could be, if not malevolent, maybe maybe they don't care at all. <laughs> Whereas vampires tend to be a little bit aggressive. So I'll go with ghosts. I like the idea. It's not friendly ghosts. It's disinterested ghosts. Like, yeah. Ghosts who treat Ambi me like everybody else. Ghosts. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Question number two for you, Paul. Uh, you're walking down an alley and you see a doorway marked uh, do not open. What do you do? No, I don't open that. That's I, I'm a rule follower. I'm an inverted <laughs> rule follower, certainly from high school. I'm glad uh, you did. Yeah. Question number three for you, Paul. Aliens land in Central Park. What is your best guess? They are here to make us their friends or they are here to make us their dinner? <laughs> um, hmm. Well, I mean, if they chose Central Park, yeah, I'll be a little bit optimistic on this one. I'm going to say friends. I like your optimism. It's, it does, that your yeah. novels do not speak to this optimism, Paul, but I'm thrilled to hear this. So question number four for you. For you, what is the perfect Halloween relaxation film? Would it be a classic universal monster film or a brutal slasher from the 1980s? Oh, definitely a classic universal monster. I'm, uh, I'm not a huge slasher fan. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm sorry, horror fans out there. That's <laughs> partly just because I was never, like, gore always used to bother me and give me nightmares, and Freddy Krueger gave me nightmares, so... Yeah, I would go with the classic monster movie. Well, speaking of which, the perfect question number five for you, Paul, which would you rather have, a sleepover with Freddy Krueger or a <laughs> campout with Jason Voorhees? Uh, definitely a campout with Voorhees. You know, I, I think I could outrun that guy. Uh, honestly, uh, where you can't outrun Freddy. Freddy's going to get you, man. Um, uh, Jason, no. Like, I, I could climb a tree, do something. I like the idea of Paul Tremblay like lacing up his uh, uh, converse and like stretching out. Okay, I just got to right. get ahead of this shambling undead monstrosity. So, exactly, uh, Paul. We always ask our guests, uh, "What are you loving in pop culture? Are there things you're listening to? Are you binging TV show? What is on your daily pop culture menu?" Oh man, so much pressure again. So let me let me go first with music. And this was actually just a discovery. It was funny. I, I did an interview with someone, and they mentioned, "Hey, in the Paul Bears Club." Like one of the bands that Art sort of joins and, and quits is called Antigon. You know, sort of a riff, like it takes Antigone and breaks it in mm -hmm. half like like you know, a precious college student would kind of thing. <laughs> and he said, Oh, hey, is that like a reference to a, a Boris song? And I was like, No, I wish it was. Like I didn't know of the band Boris, but after that interview, I've been listening to uh a 2019 like EP from Boris. I'm gonna butcher the pronunciation of it, uh, Akuma no Uta. Okay. Um and it's it's really really good. Uh, he described it as to me as like a Melvin's ish kind of sludgy, doom metal meets. And actually, there are a couple of punk songs on there too. So like Boris is sort of my new music, new, new to me music discovery. Um, and I did recently see Clutch and Helmet 
in quicksand playing Boston, which was an amazing time. Reading wise, the book that I, I want to continue to shout from the rooftops about is a novel from Mariana Enriquez called Our Shade of Night. Oh. Uh, it won't be out in the U.S. until February. I think it's out in the U.K. now, if there are any U.K. listeners, but it's worth waiting until February. Um, it's one of my favorite novels I've ever read, which, you know, when you get to a certain age or my age, you kind of think your favorite books list is sort of set in stone. But uh, but Mariana is um, she's an amazing she's my favorite horror writer right now. That is and amazing. let's see, TV wise. What have I watched TV wise? I don't know. F uh, film. I really enjoyed. Nope. Okay. Uh, I'm obsessed with a movie called St. Maud, which came out a couple of years ago. Oh, yeah. Um, I'm trying to think on the TV side of things. I don't know. Like everybody else, I watched The Bear with my wife. That was fun. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I like Severance a lot. Uh, uh, Apple TV Severance show. It was definitely cool. Well, now we have wonderful novels and music and TV and movies <laughs> to put on our playlist. Paul uh, Tremble, you've been an amazing uh, guest. Uh, we've really loved having you here. Folks who have not yet read The Paul Bearers Club should rush out to wherever they buy books and read it. I'll remind our listeners, if you have comments, questions, or suggestions for future episodes, feel free to reach out to us on social media. We are at WAER on both Twitter and Instagram. And if you hear something stirring outside your window tonight... Don't worry, it's probably just a new episode of Pop Life. I will see you <laughs> next time. Thanks for listening to Pop Life, a production of WAER, Syracuse Public Media. You can find archived episodes at WAER.org. And don't forget to subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen for automatic delivery of new episodes.